Well, good morning. Um, those of you guys are like, who is this? I am Phil Waller. So I am one of those people that Tad has bravely entrusted his pulpit to. Um, for background on me, I am a chaplain down at Seven Special Forces Group with the Army and been doing that for about 12 years, been in ministry for about 20 years of different types. Um, Mosaic is our local church home. We've been here for about a year in Crestview, and um, this is kind of where we've planted our flag and I'm excited to be a part of it. Unfortunately, with um, my job and um, having a larger family, I've got five kids, we tend to um, miss more often than we like, especially in this time of COVID. If your kid is sick or has the sniffles, like COVID brought to light that you should keep your kid at home and you should stay at home. Y'all, I used to be in children's ministry. If your kid has a sniffle, stay at home, whether they have COVID or not. Like don't give the other kids, don't get the other kids sick. But luckily COVID brought to the mind, everyone knows, okay, good, stay at home if you're sick. So that's good. Um, the downside is unfortunately we've missed quite a bit. That's why the opportunity to watch online is huge. So we've been blessed in that. Um, luckily, I just, I have the opportunity to speak today and I wanna thank Tad specifically. Um, I was telling David earlier, I had this whole intro talking about how amazing Tad is and what, what, how great is um, the elders of this church and what the important role that is. And then he preached on elders two weeks ago. So you guys got that lame. But one thing I just want to emphasize is that it's a big deal for a pastor to give up his pulpit and let someone else proclaim the gospel. Because this isn't a time of, of teaching. This is a time of thus saith the Lord, which is weighty and heavy. And um, my father-in-law is a pastor, and I'd been married to um, Kelly for a while, and one day I kind of was picking on him. I was like, well, when are you going to let me preach at your church? And he looked at me and said, Phil, he goes, he said, it'll, it'll, definitely, we'll make that happen. He goes, but I want you to understand something. He said, I have 52 opportunities in a year to communicate the gospel as boldly and as clearly as I can. And he goes, and the reality is some of those sermons are written for me ahead of time, whether I like it or not, because he said, Christmas and Easter, these are good things, but those are solid. Those are, you know, those are already happening. Then you got Mother's Day and a few other events and, and maybe homecoming and, and, a, and a missionarial visit. And he goes, and you know, now we're down to 40-something opportunities where my entire congregation has gathered for me to proclaim the gospel. He goes, it's hard to give one of those up. And it hit me. I was like, wow, that's a, that's a lot of weight on that senior pastor and that, on that main communicator. So, um, so I'm thankful, Tad. I'm really glad he's not here because I thought I was gonna be looking at him saying this is awkward. Um, but I'm really, I'm really blessed and thankful that he trusts me enough to do this. And um, my trust is not in my ability, but in the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Um, so if you would like to start turning to the book of Acts, we're gonna be in chapter 16. And um, I wanna give a little bit of background. I have a couple of goals today. One of my goals is to help you to study scripture and understand the way scripture works. So there's a saying that says, never read a Bible verse. Never read a Bible verse. Because you can take one verse and you can make it say all sorts of weird stuff. In fact, there's a, pa there's a passage later on we're gonna read today that says something about like, and it was about midnight and Paul and Silas were singing praises or were praying and singing praises and hymns to God and the prisoners were listening. Well, clearly that is ordained from God that we shall start a midnight choir at the local prison, right? So it says. No, we gotta read in context. And so one of my goals is to, one, help you guys understand context and look at a few different things. And as we're gonna look through three distinct people that God brought to salvation. And um, one of the ways that's important is, is God's word, this, this, this word, the Bible, whether you have a digital version, physical version, um, the word of God is important. There's a couple things you need to know about it. It's God breathed, 
God speaks it. God is the one as the author. It's infallible. It's perfect. Okay. Now I get it. There's translation all thing. You're like, well, what does that mean? I, God's got this. All right. I mean, we got. We're talking about a God who literally jumped into human skin, died on a cross, and was rose from the dead. I think He can take care of His book. Okay. All right. He's got this. All right, but it's also written, each passage you're reading is written by a particular person inspired by God to a particular people at a particular time. And yet also, it's valuable to everyone in all time. That's mind-boggling. Like, I can't even write a text that makes sense to somebody, and this is amazing. All right, so when we read scripture, it's important to read it and understand that, yes, there's a particular person written to a particular people at a particular time for a particular reason, but also, it's valuable, and it applies to you today in a way that it may take a little bit of digging to understand. Um, so, if you brought, if you grabbed one of the um, bulletins, thank you, that's the word. So, you knew exactly what I was thinking. If you grab one of the bulletins, it has notes on the inside, all right? There, um, there's a reason for that. There's two reasons. One, Tad normally gives you some sermon notes, okay? So, if you want to, like, have a kind of a comfort zone, I got your sermon notes there. Um, if you didn't grab one, it's okay, because the sermon notes are super simple and short, and the reason is, is because um, someone I know very well, and I'm not going to call her her name, but she happens to be married to me, is the person who wants notes, and I think some people think you get to a higher level of heaven or you're more, more holy if you actually write notes. That's not true, but it is good to take notes. Also, she is also the type of person who, if a pastor leaves a blank unfilled in, she will come up to him after the sermon and say, I need the answer to this. It's not done yet. So my notes are very simple and they're very straightforward. That way you can fill them in and then there's plenty of room on the other side to take notes if you'd like to add to that. So um, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna jump into Acts chapter 16. God, I just, I pray that you would show up and be present today. I pray that you would speak through me and God, I pray that if there's any junk in me, if there's any mess in me, anything I say or do or act that's wrong, God, I pray that you would blank that from people's minds and God, that your word would be boldly proclaimed. God, I pray for each person here, wherever they're at in their spiritual journey, whether they're totally new to this whole idea of Jesus or God, they've been following you for decades. God, I pray that today you would draw them closer to you, whether it's closer to salvation or God, that you would sanctify them a little bit more so they can be more and more like you. God, I pray for the word today. I thank you for this message. I thank you for this passage. I thank you for how you've taught me in this. And God, I pray that you would use me today to share about the awesomeness of your gospel. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. All right. So we're gonna start in chapter 16 in verse 11. So, setting sail from Trehos, we, okay, I gotta stop. I made it five words. We, who's this we? Who's this we? This is one thing. Again, when you're studying scripture, we skip over so much stuff. I wanna know, well, I'm not even trying to figure out what Trehos is, but we, let's do, let me give some background. All right, so, let me back up a little bit. So, in the beginning, God created everything. All right, you may think, okay, that's, you're backing up way too much. Yes and no, because I think it's important we understand where all this stuff comes from. So, in the beginning, God created everything and it was perfect. The world was perfect. It was good. And then man messed it up. We sinned. Humankind sinned. And ever since then, man's default actions are sinful. Unless acted on by an outside force, we are sinful. Even when you do something good, if it is outside of God's will and desire, it is selfish. 
And let's be honest, most of the time I do stuff good, it's honestly selfish because I want people to see it and give me praise. So that's the world from the, from the Garden of Eden on. However, God was not surprised by this. He knew it was coming and he had a plan in place. He had a plan where he, had to, he said basically for every sin, there must be a death. So thus instituted the sacrificial system. The Old Testament times where you would, you would sacrifice an animal and pay for the sins and they'd sacrifice more animals to pay for the sins of the whole nation. And we had lots of, lots of sacrificing animals, lots of death. Doesn't solve the problem. Also, not surprising to God. He knew. Way back in Genesis 3 in the Proto-Angelion, which is a really kind of crazy phrase, but it's talking about the future vision of one who will come. The seed of woman, which I don't know if you guys remember anatomy class, women don't have seed, so it's gotta be a born of a virgin, a man. The seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent, the one who deceived woman originally. And though it would be, his heel would be bruised, he would crush the head and he would defeat Satan and death and sin for eternity. That one was Jesus. So years and years later, God sent himself the perfect sacrifice, the one that would last for forever to die on a cross to take on your sins, take on my sins, take on the sins of the world. And all you must do is follow and believe in him and you will be saved, not just here on this earth, but for eternity. So now we're caught up to about 2,000 years ago. After that, Jesus' disciples, the ones that followed him, went out and started scattering all over the place and started telling everyone about Jesus. They're living in a Jewish society where they've been spending thousands of years looking for the coming Messiah and they're like, y'all, we found him. I don't know, they said y'all, probably. They said, y'all, we found him. His name was Jesus. He died, he rose again, and he is the way to salvation. Believe in him. And then that made the Jewish leaders mad because they were losing their power because they were in charge of this Jewish faith that was all of a sudden turning to something different. And they didn't realize that it was not turning to something different. It was completing what was talked about in the Old Testament. And one of these people was a guy named Saul, and he hated the, Jew, the Christian faith so much, he decided to start killing Christians. And he starts wandering, he starts going around, and then Jesus shows up to Saul on the road and dramatically saves him and blows his mind, changed his name to Paul. Paul eventually becomes a missionary, trained up by a guy named Barnabas, another thing, I'm giving you guys way too much detail. All this stuff, Paul eventually gathers together his crew. Now, him and Barnabas go out and they do some missionary work, and then Barnabas and his um, nephew, Mark, go off and they do something different, and then Paul grabs a couple guys. He grabs Silas, he grabs Timothy, and he grabs Luke, and they start going off and they start doing a missionary journey. And Luke is the guy who actually writes the book of Acts. He writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And again, I said it's written by a specific person to a specific people at a specific time. That's it. Luke is a doctor. In fact, some people call him Dr. Luke. He is an incredibly educated man, and he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, both in Acts and Luke. And what most scholars believe is this is basically a guy who's a patron. Actually, we have this cool thing now, this app now that's called Patreon, where you can actually help sponsor people to do the things that you appreciate. That's, that's not a new idea. That existed way back then, and this was a patron. He basically sponsored Luke to write an account of Jesus' life. And so if you start the book of Luke, what you'll see is that's exactly what he says. He says, hey, I'm writing, a, I'm writing an account of Jesus' life, but not just for Theophilus, not just for that person, but for everyone to hear. And so then he's writing it in the book of Acts. And the cool thing about the book of Acts is you realize this is a firsthand account because he's walking around with Paul and he's recording what's actually happening. So he did the research to write Luke. Now he's recording Acts. So here they are, they're working their way through Turkey and other parts of Asia, and Paul wants to go to Europe. And God said no. So he didn't, he went somewhere else. And then one day he's on the coast again, he's looking, he wants to go to Europe, and he has a dream. 
And it's called the Macedonian Call. And there's a man of Macedonia, of Greece, who in a vision to Paul says, come over, we wanna hear the gospel. And so, they, so that's where we're at. Caught you up to this point. So Paul, Luke, Silas, Timothy, traveling together, leaving Asia, Turkey, and they are about to be the first Christian missionaries to the continent of, of Europe. Which I don't know about you, but my background is European. So the reality is because of this moment is what, most likely why one day I eventually heard the gospel. It's because this was the moment where Paul moved into Europe. So this is important. So, setting sail from Troas, back in verse 11, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. All right, so we're gonna stop real quick. Setting the stage. They left this place, they came across the sea. Actually, apparently this is, um, God was blessing this apparently because it took them two days. Later on, they do the same journey, it takes them five days. So I don't know what the deal is, the wind was at their back, I don't know how it all worked, but they were blessed, they got there. And they went to this place and it's a Roman colony. A Roman colony is very interesting because it's, it's a unique point. Think of it as a city that it's kind of a, kind of a gathering place. It's a place where it's important, uh, might be in a good location, it's where a lot of people who maybe worked for the government at one time of Rome would retire. Um, it probably has like an interstate that goes kind of like just north of it, maybe a really nice beach down south. Um, you know, kind of like, you know, here. It basically is Okaloosa County. It's a retirement community. It's a place where people left and they showed that it was a place of gathering for it. People would vacation there. People would go there to trade and people would go there to retire if they had served in the Roman government, which included a lot of their military. So this would be a place of heavily, heavy military. You can't get a military discount most of, the, most of those shops here in Philippi because everyone's military, so they didn't lose money, you know, that kind of thing. So you got the stage, all right? The other thing I love is that Paul, it says they, uh, they remained in the city some days. Paul's, Paul had a, a pattern of going to the synagogues on the Sabbath. And so he shows up there, and they're there a few days, and he doesn't go off and take off right away. He's tired. He's traveling tired, which I love. All throughout Scripture, as you read the Bible, what you realize is these are real people, real people, real stories, real stuff. And I don't know about y'all. When you guys travel, I'm tired. I'm always coming back. At vacations, I've learned to never end a vacation on Sunday if I got to work on Monday. I got to come back because I got to have a day to reboot. And so Paul's taking a couple days, and he's rebooting. And then we're going to go on to uh, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, like I said, we went outside the gate of, um, to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the, woman, the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. So, a little bit of background. Paul's going to the synagogue. It's his normal pattern. He'd go to a city, he'd go to the synagogue, and then he would basically say, listen, this stuff you're studying here, this Old Testament, it's all point, because they called it the Old Testament at that time. But these scriptures you're studying all point to Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus, all right? So he goes, and there's no synagogue. In ancient times, you needed 10 Jewish men in a city, and then you formed a synagogue. So apparently this city doesn't even have 10 Jewish men. 
So this is, this is a bold new frontier for Paul. He becomes, he's becoming the missionary to the Gentiles, those who are not of the Jewish faith. So what he does is he goes around where he thinks, where in the next logical step in his mind, this is not what I would think, but apparently he knows what he's doing. He goes out to the riverside where he's assuming there will be a place of prayer. So apparently a common practice at the time was if there's not a synagogue, everyone who would like to or follow God or is interested in things of God would gather together to pray. And so what he stumbles upon is essentially a women's Bible study out by the river. And there's these women and they're like, Lydia's particularly is called a worshiper of God. In other words, somebody who is interested in God, someone who is, is seeking God, someone who is trying their best to be good and honorable, but doesn't know Jesus, doesn't really understand the path to salvation, doesn't understand the concept of a Messiah, the Christ, the one who would save you. And then the other interesting thing is, they talk about Lydia, is that she's a seller of purple. Now, what that means is she is filthy rich. And I don't mean kind of rich. I mean insanely rich. So purple was the hardest dye to get a hold of. People who could get a hold of it and trade it were incredibly powerful. Uh, Thyatira, where she's from, is actually one of the centers for that. So she would have been not European, not white. She would have been a foreigner in this land and a powerful woman business owner. We're talking about, and probably like, I've heard people talk about her as like, you know, she was like a, a fashionista and she was like a, 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 a major designer and all this stuff. I mean, it's kind of fun. You can have some fun with it. But the point is, she was somebody that people would know. Not, not everyone, the higher ranking people, the wealthy would all know who this woman is. And she would have influence and power and money, lots of money. What's interesting it's so funny you said, David said something about the love of money when we talk about the offering. There are two ways that the Christian church historically seems to view money. We have the monk approach, that I will forsake all of my earthly goods and I will live in a horrible little smelly little hut with a terrible robe and eat berries or something because I can't have money. And then there's the other approach that is the, if God loved me, I would be healthy and wealthy and wise and I can just pray and he will give me all the things that I desire. I would say that neither one of those things is accurate. Now, one of these is not a horrible idea. One of these is a false gospel. Historically, being a Christian does not make you wealthy or wise or safe or let's be honest, historically, being a Christian doesn't make you alive. It tends to end that. But Lydia is a person who is trying to do good and is a person who God continues to use, as we'll see here, that she actually, she listens to Paul's reasoning. So what would happen is the way you would teach in a synagogue or in a study like this is you would sit down. When Paul came and says he sat down, that meant he basically was assuming the position of authority and saying, listen, I'm going to tell you what's up. And then he, he reasons with them and explains to them. And through his reasoning and explanation of what they were studying and what they were understanding, Lydia came to saving faith, not just in the idea of God, not just to worship God, but saving faith in Jesus, the God-man who is the one to salvation. And that's huge. Also, it says her entire household 
was led to Christ. Now, this is not saying that because she was saved, her whole household was saved. What it's saying is that it was a process of leading her family to salvation, her people. And she says household, I'm assuming, I'm guessing maybe her servants, people who live in the house, people who take care of the house, because she has such a massive house that she says, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Y'all, this is the start of the Philippian church. When you read the book of Philippians, that's who Paul's writing to, is this group that starts meeting in this woman's house. And on top of that, she also has Paul and Silas and Timothy and um, Luke come live with her and stay with her there. As basically, because she has a big enough house to have guest houses, most likely. What's interesting here is in our modern era, where we love to do little sound bites of, a, of stuff on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, what brings this woman to salvation is someone sitting down and reasoning with her. And there are all different ways to evangelize and all different ways to share Christ with people. Today, a lot of people say, well, you can't reason with people because you know, we're in a post-rational society. We're in a post, post-modern society. We've got all these different things. Like you, you can't just, and that may be true. It may be harder, but here's the deal. You can't anyway. You can't save anybody. Sorry to break the news to you. The Holy Spirit is the one that saves. God is the one that saves. And so Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, sat down and began to reason because the Holy Spirit had led him to this. This is the way to reach these people. This particular group of ladies, specifically Lydia, is going to be brought about brought to salvation through reason, because sometimes God uses reason to save. There you go, that's point number one. Sometimes God uses reason to save. Because God is the author of salvation, not Paul. God is the author of salvation, not Phil. Moving on, verse 16. This part I find fascinating. As we're going to the place of prayer, so again, this is time passes, okay? So time has passed. Now they're going back to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that the hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, I'm gonna stop right there. If you're reading along in your Bible and, I, and, you, and you're a little bit weirded out because I stopped in the middle of a paragraph, all right? I'm, this is my next little side note on Bible study. The paragraphs were not there originally. They're not bad. They're just ways to help us guide in our English-speaking world. We use paragraphs. Greek back then didn't, okay? Um, Another thing might weird you out, there weren't verses originally either, or chapters. These were just long letters or long books. Um, the chapters, verses, paragraphs are all there for us to help our brains break it down and be able to bring it. So again, usually they're put together in a thought. So I'm breaking up a thought here, but it's okay. Um, so let's, let's find out who this girl is. So this girl is the poorest of the poor. She's the opposite of Lydia. Probably, scholars guess, she's probably 12 to 14 years old, somewhere in that range. Most likely, she was sold into slavery by her family. Now, we think of, our, because we live in America, our version of slavery is chattel slavery, southern slavery in the deep south. That's not slavery for the, most of the history of the world. 
Most history world, you were not born into slavery. You were conquered or you were taken or you were sold into slavery or it was temporary to pay off a debt. So they say most likely the situation was the type of thing where the, the dad had a debt and sold his own daughter into slavery. This girl's had a rough life. And then on top of that, she's possessed, she becomes possessed by a demon and starts telling the future, starts being able to forecast and fortune tell to which she brought her owners much gain. There was a, there's a whole concept in, in, in the world at this time, in that area of the world, where this python god, there was this, this story of this python god who would give the ability to tell the future. And it's hard for us in modern America to comprehend the idea that there are demons that actually function and act in this world. Now, the way they act is, I think, they're skillful. They attack the culture based on what the culture can, is, is working with and what they, how they can work in there. In this case, you had a group of people who wanted to know the future and want to be able to do things. So this, this demon found this way to do that. Um, at the time, most commanders for the military wouldn't go into battle until they had a seer tell them what the future was going to hold. That was a modern, that was a common practice at the time. Now, the thing, my mind registers and goes, wait a second, if both sides have a person predicting the future and both sides say that they're going to win, how is this working? Here's the reality. Some of these people were charlatans. They were fakes. They were just trying to make money. In this case, this was an actual demon-possessed girl who was being, who was, the demon was speaking through her and was actually telling the future and was making her owners a lot of money. The other thing that's always catch my attention here is it, the phrase she says, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Sounds good, right? She's telling the truth, right? What most scholars say is that what she's actually doing here is mocking them. Because here's the deal. Servants of the most high God has no frame of mind, no concept for that in Greece at the time. In Philippi at the time, they have no idea what she's saying. Those words make no sense. They don't have the foundation we have. We read, again, we read the Bible with years of knowledge a lot of times and just cultural. If you live in America, the Bible permeates our culture. So we know some stories. We know concepts. We have a concept of words like Lord, God. They didn't have, they had different meanings for those words. So when she said most high God, and then what do they proclaim the way of salvation? Salvation from what? There's a book by a guy named J.D. Greer, and uh, he had a line there I thought was one of the best lines when it came to salvation. Um, and it, honestly, being a minister in the South, I find this a lot. In, in, in the Bible Belt South, where, where uh, churchianity is probably the biggest religion down here. Not Christianity, churchianity. He gave, a, he gave an illustration of a guy sitting on the end of a pier fishing. And this guy goes running by him, and jumps off, drowns. Somebody else walks up and goes, that man just died for your salvation. Salvation from what? I'm fishing, I'm fine. The problem is a lot of times you have to get people lost before you can get them saved. You have to get, make them aware of their need for a savior before they even understand the concept for salvation. So when she's saying these things, she's not helping at all. They have no idea what she's saying. But what's interesting is that she seems to be drawn to them and does this for days and days and days. There's a, uh, there's, a, there's a theory that what you're against, if you're against it enough, you tend to be sometimes can turn to it. And then, of course, especially if that thing happens to be true, like the salvation brought to us through Jesus. Um, 
there's a story in the book, um, if you ever read the book More Than a Carpenter, sorry, referencing books, but um, the book More Than a Carpenter is really small, it's really great. It's by a guy named Josh McDowell, super easy to read. Um, one of the books he references is a guy that would go around to different campuses of, um, campus I, campus E, campus I, campuses, at colleges, and would debate with people, I and mean, would share stuff. Well, he had shown up to this college, and the, the, the local, um, like, Baptist Student Union or, or church group had set up a debate with him with the, the, the atheist professor. If you guys ever been to college, you always know that guy. There's the one guy who is loudly and adamantly atheist, or guy or gal, whatever, it's professor. Um, in my case, is a different story, but yeah, I failed that class. I tried. <laughs> but he, they set this up, this, this debate, and he gets up there, and the, guy, the, the guest speaker gets up, and he starts to talk about the, the evidences of the Bible that make the Bible true. He said, one was the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. They're all over historically. Second was his own personal experience where God had worked through him and he'd seen amazing things done. And the third was the conversion of Saul, which we talked about, into Paul, this guy who was literally murdering Christians and became a leader missionary in the Christian movement. And the professor, realizing that he can't really argue with the evidence of the cross because they, it's everywhere. That historically, you can't argue with it. You can't argue with someone's personal testimony. It's their personal testimony. So he decided, I've got, to de- I've got to discuss Saul and Paul. So he starts, immediately comes up right off the bat, and he goes, listen, he goes, this is a common psychosis. If you are so adamantly against something, it's very easy for you to be con- con- convinced that that is the truth. And the guy cut him off real quick and said, be careful, professor, you might become a Christian. I think this is what's happening here. Is this girl who is possessed by this demon sees truth and light in them, and she can't help but be drawn to them but at the same time, the demon is desperately trying to mock them through her. And Paul becomes greatly annoyed. This is how you know the Bible's true, by the way. They don't, if, if I'm writing, if I'm making up my own fake religion and I'm gonna write my fake book about it, I'm gonna say, and then Paul, filled by the Holy Spirit and led by God, had compassion on her and turned and gently said, dear child, be saved. no. We're writing about real people, and Paul was annoyed because she would not stop talking. She would not stop screaming. She would not stop following them. Leave us alone. And he turns, but still led by the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't fuss at her. He doesn't fuss at her at all. He speaks to the demon, and in the name of Jesus, he tells him to get out. Not through his power, not through anything else, but through through the power of Jesus. It says, at that, at that very hour, it came out. That does not mean within the next 60 minutes, all right? That's a phrase that meant immediately, right then, now, it happened. Boom, demon, gone, girl, saved, free from demonic possession, unable to tell the future anymore. That power was demonic. It was not of her. So God sometimes saves through reasons, but sometimes he does something miraculous. Sometimes God uses miracles to save. Casting out of a demon, powerful movement, led by the Holy Spirit, commanded in Jesus' name, God is the author of salvation, and sometimes he uses miracles to save. Now we're going on verse 20. It says, and when they brought them to the magistrates, them um, being the, the, the owners of the slave girl who were now broke, brought them to the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to, 
Except or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Again, powerful, evil people don't like losing money. You ever notice that? When they bring charges, they bring charges that they cost, he, they cost his money by casting out a demon out of the slave girl we had. That's not what they said. They're like, oh, they're doing Jewishy things, and that's wrong. And here's the thing, crazy thing. That just seems like a minor accusation. The result of that was they got beat with rods and then thrown into prison. And then the jailer put them and fastened their feet in stocks. I've always been confused by this phrase. Put their, fasten their feet in stocks. Put them in the inner prison and fasten their feet in stocks. And anyone ever been to like, a, uh, like a, um, an old fort or something like that where they got the stockades? They put the people up there on display because they're trouble and people throw fruit at them or whatever. All right. That's not what this is. That's always what I pictured. That's not what this is. The way this works is they would actually take your feet and they'd spread your feet out wide in these like wooden things that would yank it so your feet are uncomfortable, hook those things up to chains, lift those chains to the ceiling and you would hang upside down, all right? That's what it meant to be in stocks. Now, they're also in the inner prison, which means they're on the bottom lowest, worst floor of the prison where you put the worst murderers and rapists. That's where these guys went for having the audacity to proclaim Christ. This is the spot where everyone else is filth, dirty. There's no bathrooms here. All that stuff is flowing down into this bottom thing. And Paul and Silas's heads are sitting in it as they're hanging upside down from stocks. That's the scene the jailer puts him in. Now, who's this jailer guy? Now, this is the one that's fascinating to me. Maybe it hits a little closer to home. The jailer is a combat vet. So he is. At this time, during this time, what, what would the common practice would be would be someone who had served their time in the, in the Roman military and had served out their time were given a pension of something like a prison. They were put in charge of the prison and they'd be paid based on how many prisoners they had. And that was their pension. They were given authority and rule over this thing. And that was, a, that was your, your, your thank you for your service, all right, was here, you're going to run this prison. So this guy is a combat vet. Now you got to think, I don't know if y'all have ever seen Gladiator in any other movie where it has Roman legions attacking each other. That is brutal. That guy has been through a lot, has seen a lot, has, has made it through all of that. There's no telling what his rank was when he finally got out, okay? He went through that whole thing no telling what all kind of combat he went through. And then his reward is to be stuck in there with and be in charge of prison. So he's probably not doing great. I'm guessing. I don't know. The plus side is he is getting paid. He's got food on the table. So he's not rich like Lydia. He's not a slave. He's middle class in a time where middle class didn't exist. He basically is just, he's cared for. But he doesn't seem to be doing well because, you know, he's told to put the, just to basically protect these guys. And he puts them in the inner prison and locks them in with all the worst people instead of just, Taking care of them. Let me move on. I want to talk about this because this next pass, this next verse is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I referenced it earlier. Verse twenty-five. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. 
When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do it, you jerk, you deserve it. Oh, wait, no, that's not, sorry, that's not what it says. Um, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Yeah, I, yeah I, I'm not the one writing this. If it had been me, I'd have said something totally different. All right, so back up. Paul and Silas hanging upside down in misery, in totally tortured, totally wrong, and, we're gonna t- and, and it actually comes up later on, if you're reading the passage a little bit later on. They are Roman citizens. Paul and Silas are both Roman citizens. They actually cannot, none of this can be done to them legally. They can't be beat. They can't be put in this prison. And they said nothing. They took on all this pain and all this suffering and all this, all this torture. And their answer to that was at midnight, they're praying and singing hymns to God. And what happens? The prisoners are listening. So when Kelly and I first got married, this passage just kept ringing through my ears. It was this thing all the time. And so that is actually why our our eldest son's name is Silas, is after this passage right here. Because the idea that what we do, especially in the hard times as believers, really ministers to the prisoners, really ministers to the people around us who don't know Christ. How do you respond when everything goes wrong? When you're completely wronged, these, it's not Paul and Silas messed up. No, 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 they were doing the right thing and they're being tortured for it, illegally. Passages like this remind me that um, as, uh, as American Christians, we're not persecuted a little flag warning on my Twitter post because it might cause someone to whatever. That's not persecution, y'all. We, we have a very distorted view of the history of what, how, how God's people have been treated by a world that rejects him and therefore rejects people who proclaim his name. Paul and Silas are experiencing this brutally right here. And then there's this amazing thing. There's this earthquake and the doors are open. I don't even know why that happens. That's so weird. And everything happens and then the, the prison, I mean, the guard, the jailer sees it, hears it, goes running in, sees the doors are open, and he goes to kill himself. Now, why is he going to kill himself? At the time, he'd have been killed anyway for letting them escape. But if he's killed in the escape, they killed him, well, then his family is taken care of. He died in service to the empire. If they escape, they kill him, possibly kill his family, but if nothing else, his family's getting booed out on the curb with no money. So he is sacrificing himself for his family. But Paul and Silas don't move. There's actually a passage earlier where, where the same thing happens to Peter. He's in a prison and the earthquake happens and the door is open and Peter walks out. So it wouldn't have been wrong for them to leave. But obviously they were being led by the Holy Spirit that this is where they're supposed to be at this time which blows my mind because you've got to know that you know that God's leading you to be beat and keep your mouth shut and then be hanging upside down and singing praises. Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Their actions, Paul and Silas's actions, or lack thereof almost action, but their action of singing praises and not fleeing when they had the opportunity, their actions broke through to this man of action. Could he have been reasoned with? Maybe. Could we have done something miraculous that saved him? Maybe. But God knew the thing to do to get through to this man was their actions. And then Paul and Silas didn't come down from being hung down and do an altar call, come forward, kneel at the front, pray, repent. They didn't do anything. He comes running in and goes, what must I do to be saved? And then they were ready with possibly the shortest gospel presentation in the Bible. I've not checked. I think it may be the shortest. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. We're done talking. Doesn't say repent of the evil you did and torturing us. It doesn't say give back the money you took from people that were wrongfully imprisoned. It didn't say any of that. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's good news, y'all. And then I love this. This is, this is something that hit me just recently, and I've, I, don't, I can't believe I've never seen this. He takes them out, and he does what he should have done probably in the first place, but he takes them out, and he washes their physical wounds with water, cleaning them up. And then immediately, they turn around, and they baptize him with that water celebrating that his spiritual wounds have been healed. That is awesome. I don't know why, I don't know why that got me. Maybe you go, you're like, I don't know, it doesn't matter to me. That's huge to me, so maybe that's just for me. But awesome. Sometimes God uses people's actions to save. Paul and Silas, led by the Holy Spirit, they did not claim their rights as Roman citizens, which was a big deal. They took their beatings, torture, they didn't flee and were part of this combat vet salvation. God is the author of salvation. Sometimes God uses actions to save. These three people were not the only three people saved in Philippi. We know in the future that Philippi becomes one of the biggest supporting churches for Paul, financially especially. We're talking about that, 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 that it's okay that pastors, if you're going to be a full-time vocation, if you're a pastor or missionary, that it depends on the body of Christ to pay your bills while you're busy doing this. We are all called to be missionaries. Every one of you is called to be a missionary, wherever you're at. All of us are called in the priesthood of the believers. If you are a believer in Christ, then you are part of the priesthood of the believers. Some of us are called by God to do that full-time. That is our main job. Some of us are not. Those who are, the rest of us help support them while they do that. And Paul was one of those people. He was called by a missionary to do that. And his, one of his biggest supporting churches was Philippi, I'm assuming led, still led by Lydia. But these three people are unique. There's an old Jewish prayer that is just horrible. These men would get up in the morning and they would pray this. God, thank you that I was not born a woman or a slave or a Gentile. And then Luke, led by God, records the first three salvations that he records in Philippi as a woman, slave, and a Gentile. 
directly thrown in the face of the Jewish, these Jewish men what they thought was the right way to salvation. These three people, one rich, one poor, one retired, one who is influential, one who is owned, and one who is served. One is a rational thinker, one's demon-possessed, and one is a man of action. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile, saved through reason, miracle, and action. If you do know this Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are called to be used by God in this process. You need to be bold. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you are here today, you finally gave in to your friend or your, or your spouse or whoever you're here, or you're watching online later on, and God has ordained this time for you to hear his word. I believe the Holy Spirit's moving in that. And I believe he's calling you to salvation. He may not use a miracle. He may not use reason. He may not use action. He may use something totally different. But God's desire is to save you. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why all this happened. That's why Paul did these missions. God is the author of salvation. Will your story, will the story of your walk with God start today? If you've not settled that in your life, don't leave here today until you, until you figure that out. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk, you can come grab me after service. You can grab any of the, any of the leaders here. We'd love to talk to you because this is the most important thing in the history of the world is the salvation of man. This is the most important thing for you for eternity is your salvation. Not to be rich or to be freed from slavery or to, or, or, or to be protected from suicide. The most important thing is your future, your eternal life. If you are a follower of Christ and you brought that person here or you didn't bring somebody here or there's people in your life, you need to be bold in proclaiming because here's the deal. God is the author of salvation, not you. Don't worry if you mess it up. God's gonna work this. God, the Holy Spirit has this. The key ingredient to all these things, it was God doing it and Paul being obedient and moving. Let me pray. God, I thank you for the story. God, I thank you for each of these individuals and the different worlds they represent. God, I thank you for saving me as a young child. God, I thank you for opening my eyes and realizing that I was a sinner in desperate need of a savior. God, I pray for each person here. God, if they know you, if you've, if you've, Perform that miracle of salvation in their lives. God, I pray that you would embolden them. I pray that you would, you've already filled them with the Holy Spirit. I pray you continue to do so. And I pray they would lean on you and trust in you and trust in the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding. And God, I pray that you would use them to bring somebody else into your kingdom. God, for those who are here or who are listening who don't know you, God, God, do what you do. 
through the miracle of salvation. And God, I pray as they are saved and as, as those of us who are followers of you desire to lean on you more, God, that we will dig more and more into your scripture and we'll understand more and more your word and we'll have more and more faith in that you are the author of salvation. God, and we need to surrender to you and to lead in your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Amen.